Hey everybody, it's T with Abduction Enigma Podcast. So this week, we're going to finish off the Allagash Abductions and go over the regressions of all four men. I will give a brief recap of what happened. And then we're going to finish this tale off. Now if you guys would like to reach out to me to appear on the podcast or have any guest suggestions, just hit me up at dufos at yahoo.com Hit me up on Facebook or abductionenigma.webador.com. Now next time we're going to go over Silent Invasion by Stan Gordon. And that's about the Bigfoot slash UFO connection. Is there Is it all in our heads or not? Well, we're going to take a deep look into that. Alright guys, let's get it. On August 26, 1976, four art students of Boston wanted to get away and go fishing for the weekend. So they went to the main Allagash River and decided to go camping, a spot in Big Eagle Lake. Their lives would be changed forever. It was very dark that night, so the four friends, Jack and Jim Wiener, Chuck Rack, and Charlie Volts, built a fire that would last for hours so that they could find their way back to the campsite. The four men shuffled to the canoe with their gear in hand to go fish. Fifteen to twenty minutes had gone by on the still lake when Chuck Rack spoke up and said, Hey guys, that's a hell of a case of swamp gas. As they turned around, 150 to 200 yards was a huge ball of glowing pulsating light coming out of the trees. Now hovering above the trees motionless, Jim Wiener says, I remember it as being a very bright round sphere of light. It had a kind of Roy Loon quality to it. It was yellow and white in nature. It hovered totally silently over the treetops. Charlie Foltz then thought maybe they should signal the craft with a flashlight. Everyone agreed, and as Jack put it, Go ahead, what's going to happen? But the moment he did, the light started coming towards the men. We then begin with Jim Wiener's hypnosis session. On January 12th, 1989, Raymond Fowler enlisted the help of Tony Constantino to conduct a hypnotic regression. He was a certified hypnotherapist and a MUFON consultant. They also enlisted the help of David Webb, a solar physicist, who was also an expert on CE3 and CE4 cases, or close encounter cases. Jim arrived at Tony's house at 2 p.m. and was very nervous and apprehensive about the idea of being hypnotized, not knowing what was going into it. Tony and Jim met and got to know each other. Tony then explained that hypnosis is simply a technique to place someone in a deep state of relaxation. Tony then turned on relaxing music and had Jim sit in a large chair. They began the interview and it was noted in the book that they asked no leading questions to Jim. Jim goes over the prior events, 
seeing a silent white sphere, a cold still water, enveloped in light, and then all of a sudden back in shore. But in this light form of hypnosis, he still could not remember the details to everything. Due to this, Tony and Raymond Fowler felt as if he was recalling the experience rather than reliving it. They put Jim in a deeper state of hypnosis. His demeanor displayed aggravation and his facial expressions mirrored that. Jim was certainly reliving them at this point. Now I took a bit of a different direction with this one. The last two weeks I've been working on it and at first I was just reading word for word what was said. This didn't actually turn out sounding the best, so what I did was I took my note-taking process and I went over everything that way. But I did leave the first part in so you guys kind of know what I'm talking about with Jim's regression. This has been a long journey just getting over the first couple hypnosis sessions. At one point in this, I mean Raymond Fowler when I say John Fuller, so please keep that in mind. What do you remember that you can tell us about that night? asked Tony. Ugh, said Jim, becoming agitated again. Just relax, said Tony. It's hard, said Jim. Just allow it to happen. Just allow it to happen. Every time you breathe out, sink more deeply into the chair. Tony continued to ease Jim into a deeper hypnotic state. Jim's head dropped, his facial muscles loosened, and his body sank deeper and deeper into the chair. Tony then continued questioning. You sense there's something you should remember, said Tony. Yes, replied Jim, becoming disturbed again. Just relax, just relax, said Tony. Jim then said, I have a sense that there is something I should remember. But it's almost like a block. A feeling comes back. What kind of feeling, said Tony. Oh, fear. I can feel my heart pounding. Tony then steps in to calm Jim again. And tell us why is your heart pounding, said Tony. I'm afraid of the light, said Jim, breathing heavily. Just relax. It's so pleasant. It's so peaceful. Why are you afraid of the light, said Tony. It's not normal, said Jim. It's on us. Jeez, it's a big light. It's around us. That's why I'm so scared. I don't even see Chuck. At this point, Jim becomes shaken and hyperventilating. Where is he, says Tony. Just relax. What happens to Chuck? Just relax. Can you see the canoe? No, it's just inside, as Jim exhales violently. Inside where? Just relax. Inside what? The tube, said Jim. Just relax. You do not see Chuck, but do you see the canoe where it should be? Do you see the spot where he was sitting? Just relax. There was a long pause at this point before Jim literally forces out an answer. I see inside the tube. And where are you when you see inside the tube, said Tony. I think I'm still in the boat, but I don't see trees anymore. What is it like inside the tube, 
said Tony. It's sparkling. No, it's not sparkle. It's... It's a... It's kind of a... It's moving. It's... It's moving. Does it move left to right or up and down, says Tony. No, the walls, the walls move. Towards you or away from you? Nope, just in, in themselves. Like when, and not exactly like, but when you blow smoke through a, through a light beam, you know? You can see it. Oh, I know how, like when dust, when you see dust, when you see dust particles in a light beam. Do you see Jack? asked Tony. Jack's behind me, said Jim. Are the four of you in the canoe? I think it's just two of us. Where are the other two, said Tony. They're not there, said Jim. They're not in the canoe, asked Tony. No. Oh, I don't like that feeling. What are the physical sensations? What's happening to your skin, to your fingers? What's happening to your body, asked Tony. Jim doesn't answer, but gasps for a breath. Tony then says, Two minutes after the light enveloped you, what happened? Just drift back slowly. Jim again doesn't answer, but blows out air. What happened two minutes after the light enveloped you, said Tony. In a forced whisper, Jim said, I can't remember. Tony tried over and over again in an attempt to discover what happened to Jim and the others enveloped by the light. But to no avail, finally Jim remembered looking up the tube. At this point, David Webb asked Jim, what is it like? It's dark up there. A long pause and then a groan. Boy, it's a frightening feeling, said Jim. It's dark at the other end of the tube, replied Raymond Valor. That's what I remember. I don't... And at this point, Jim's body began shivering all over. I know whatever's at the other end there, I'm not going to like. Tony then asks, Do you ever see what's at the other end? Boy, I can't remember. Why can't you remember, asked Raymond Fowler. I don't want to remember that, said Jim. Remember what, said Tony. I don't want to remember what's at the other end there. Why do you say you don't want to remember if you can't remember, said Tony. With a trembling voice, Jim says, I can't remember. I know there's something there, though. I know. There's something there on the other end of the tube. That's why I don't want to go there. That's why, that's why we didn't want to go there. Realizing that they weren't going to get anywhere past Jim's block. In his memory, they decided to move past this. Tony decided to employ a technique that had proved successful in the past. Just relax. I'm going to ask you that you visualize something. I'm going to ask that you visualize that you're going back into your room. That you have a gigantic TV screen. Do you see it? Mm-hmm, replied Jim. Can you draw a line down the middle? Yup, replies Jim, drawing an imaginary line. 
you can see that the left hand of the side of the screen lights up with a big no on it. Right, said Jim. Now the right hand side of the screen lights up with a big yes on it. Mm-hmm, said Jim. Now when I call you your first name, if I call you the wrong name, the no will light up. Mm-hmm, said Jim. If I call you your right name, obviously the right side of the screen will light up. Mm-hmm. Is your first name David? No, said Jim. Did the left side of the screen light up? The no side, replied Jim. Is your name Jim? Yes. Did the right side of the screen light up? Right, said Jim. When I ask you questions, tell me whether it's the left side or the right side that lights up. Would you do that, said Tony. Tony begins to ask Jim a battery of questions. Jim is afraid of what happened on the other side of the craft as he went through the light. They hurt Jack, said Jim. Repeat that, said Tony. They hurt me in my bedroom. This was a different encounter. Not the encounter with the canoe, but simply another experience as noted by Raymond Fowler. They hurt him somewhere. Where, asked Raymond Fowler, his body. Jim describes he as moving Jack's arm, and he describes them as something. There's three to four of these entities, and he can only see their legs. He describes them as wearing suits. He says, it had to be occurring in there, referring to the UFO, in some room. He doesn't remember moving through the tube, but only looking at the end. Chuck was gone. Did anything happen to Chuck? I don't remember Chuck, replied Jim. He describes these things as looking at his brother Jack. He remembers their legs and their arms, but not their faces too well. He describes them as wearing gloves, and they have three to four fingers that are connected somehow. Their gloves were shiny and blue and gray, and there were three to four of them, and on a bench sat Chuck and Charlie. He knows that he's not sitting on the bench, but he's near the bench and the two men. He's also near Jack. They're a couple feet apart. He notes six to seven. He couldn't help Jack, but he knows three or four abductors around Jack. He also notes that it's like a dream. Everything seems like it's in slow-mo, and he got the impression they were going to hurt him. The bench was attached to the wall, but it didn't have legs. And he notes that Chuck and Charlie just sit there. It's like the bench is just molded into the walls. There's something standing over there, and he points. He notes an opening and one of the abductors standing in the opening. They have something like an exoskeleton, but it's not bony. They're like people, but thin and skinny. It's like a blank when he looks at their heads. And their clothing was blue-gray suit, like sheenish, like a skier wears. They stood about five foot tall. Ray Fowler then tries to trick Jim into remembering. Were their eyes pleasant to look at? I don't remember, that's the thing that puzzles me the most. Jack remembers the faces. 
in his dreams. And he's even told me, but I don't remember anything. On February 25th, they conduct a second regression with Jim. They pick up with these entities looking at Jack's arm. They tilt back Jack's head and are studying his throat, like they're studying the muscular structure. They then turn his head to look at the functionality of it. This only lasts for a couple of seconds. Jim felt as if they were communicating with each other, but he heard no words, simply mannerisms. He then remembers their faces. They are like bugs. They've got big eyes. Their eyes aren't eyes. They were more temporarily located. Their eyes don't have pupils. And they're blackish and brown in color. They have a light-colored face with no nose. A trace of a mouth. They have holes for ears. And a tight-fitting blue-gray shiny reflective suit. He couldn't tell if they had three or four fingers because two digits seemed to be connected together, forming a fatter digit. He says that Jack's eyes are open, and Jack is frightened of what's happening to him. But he seems to be more aware than what Jim is. Jim feels as if he's dulled and difficult to maintain awareness. They looked at Jack's eyes with something in their hands. Some kind of probe, eight to ten inches long. It's thin and it's long, and they touch his eyes with it, but it doesn't seem to hurt him. They also have a handheld device. It's like a type of flashlight. It's blinking a white light in Jack's eyes. Jack then starts to completely strip naked. With a shocked look on his face as they're filling his genitals and inner thighs. They're bending his knees, moving his feet, looking at his toes, examining his rear. At this point, Jim begins to note a low hum that he hears. And he can tell that the room was humid. He then sees that they escort out Jack to his relief. They then take Jack to another place with their hands under his arms, one on each side. He is walking and his clothes are left on the floor. The other three men are waiting for Jack, but he's gone. But still next to Jim, the abductors watch. I think they want to look at me, he said. He then says that they are interested in him and Jack because they look the same, and the other two don't. They then conduct an examination of Jim the same as they did Jack. Jim feels that if he didn't unclothe, he would be in trouble, almost like a parent telling a child. Jim reluctantly did what they wanted so they wouldn't hurt him, and was embarrassed that they checked his genitals. They then want Jim to go down an opening, down a hallway, where Chuck and Charlie are. He says that he has no choice, and reluctantly does so, still naked, but not cold. He has one on each side of him holding him up. He feels like he's going to faint. The hallway is dark, it's short, and this freaks him out. I'm not going in there. No. No. No fucking way. Just leave me alone, Jim said. It led to an illuminated room.
I just don't like these things touching me, said Jim. I don't like bugs. To him, these beings were like bugs touching him, and it just grossed him out and pissed him off. This hallway was a straight hallway. It was dark. The right surfaces are curved. Because he didn't want to go down there, one of them poked him with something to make him go down the dark path. It was a big pointy object, the same one they examined him with. They then come to a small room, smaller than the last, with a flat table. It's either made of thick metal or plastic, and he was forced to lay down. There's a divider in the middle of the room, and the table is grayish, with the light above them. He perceives them as trying to take a sperm sample from him. He feels as if he doesn't get an erection, the same issue will happen, and he will be in trouble. Jim reluctantly complies so that he can leave. They collect their sample in a silvery container that collects fluids. It's small like a bottle, like an air gun can. It's about six inches. It has a small neck, but it fits over his penis. He wants to murder them for poking him earlier. He's very agitated and aggravated at this point. They walk away with the sample, and he becomes more angry. Because of the poke and because they're doing this to people. He goes back to the other room with Chuck and Charlie, and they let him put his clothes on. It was the same two abductors that had been escorting him around. The one had finished with the sample and had come back. Jack isn't back yet, but Charlie and Chuck are sitting on the bench still. Jack arrives after a short while and puts his clothes on. He remembers four alien beings standing around. And the next thing he knows, he's on the boat. He looks up to see the object's pulsating plasma dimmed around the craft. Raymond Fowler then asks Jim to draw the UFO in this relaxed state of hypnosis. He draws a walnut-shaped object two hemispheres inverted upon each other with a glowing ring around the midsection that is pinkish white. It was stationary but he remembers it being rounder. It was difficult to make out because it was so dark and then it went light again. It lit up and then it imploded when you see an iris on a camera close. Two months had passed after Jim's regression before they could conduct a regression with Jack. Jack didn't live near. There was also other issues with weather and schedule. But all four of the Allagash men were determined to find out what happened. They had sacrificed a lot of energy and time to do so. And as it turns out, this wasn't the first encounter that some of the men had had. And while Jim was more reserved, during his regression. As well as the experience overall, Jack was quite the opposite. He was talkative and excited. And at this point, he wasn't aware what Jim had reported. He just knew that it was traumatic. So Jack had his wife there for emotional support during the regression. Leading up to that, Jack doubted that he could even be hypnotized, but easily was hypnotized by Tony. The next events that occurred during his hypnosis were the same as Jim's. Men get in the canoe, a low-flying UFO over the treetops, silent. 
The beam of light shining down as the men tried to paddle away, freaking out after Chuck Rack had pointed the flashlight at it. And he describes the beam of light as a thin beam. It's a hollow beam, but it's wide, he describes. And as he's describing this beam and the UFO chasing the canoe, he begins to breathe heavy and his facial expressions change, the same as Jim. Obviously displaying some type of agitation or anxiety. And the next thing he knows, he's on the beach again. Much like Jim, and as John Fuller points out at this point. They both blocked out a little bit of that memory. They were being chased by the UFO, and with a snap of a finger, they're back on the beach. With a huge chunk of time missing. Commonly reported with alien abductions. Now while he's on shore, he describes looking at the pulsating UFO and it was as big as a tractor trailer truck. It was very close, he felt like he could throw a rock at it. And he then notes that there was a line on it, a squiggly line. Now this is the interesting part. As he looks at the line, he has a violent ill reaction. He wants to throw up. When asked about where the line was, he said it's in the middle of the UFO and he describes it as energy coming off of it. When he looks at it, it also makes him feel like he's floating. He then says that it's making him feel ill and he doesn't want to look at it. They then question Jim and say, what color was this line? And he said it was orange and darker than the object. Jack then states that the squiggly line is moving around the equator of the craft. It's like a magnet in filings. It looks like the pattern of a magnet with filings around it, except it moves. That's what's coming out of the lines. Tony then decided to move on because he could see that Jack started to feel sick again, reliving the experience. He then describes the same events as Jim as far as the departure. Getting back ashore, he then says that they were tired, just tired, and they wanted to go to sleep. And they thought it was odd that the fire had already been burnt out. Already being in a deep state of hypnosis, Tony wanted to take Jack even deeper. To put in the missing pieces. We then continue where Jack was taken by the light. We're in it, said Jack. As he looks up, he can see a room. There's something like smoke around. It's a lighted room. He can see Charlie Foltz looking up. The light is surrounding the canoe and the men. Jim is next to Jack and he is holding his brother so he doesn't lose him or worse. He then notes something very odd. The feeling is changed and he knows that Charlie is screaming. He describes Charlie's face in front of him. Eyes and mouth are wide open and horrible. He then begins to question things and wonders if Chuck fell out of the canoe. He then wonders if they can see Chuck and he searches the water, but he doesn't see him. I feel funny. I don't feel like I'm here. Something's happening. And I'm really scared. Something is happening. He doesn't know where he's at. A light 
front of him, and he can see Jim, but then he can't move all of a sudden. He sees Jim sitting on a bench, and the bench has no legs. It's coming from behind the other three men that are all sitting upon him. Jack doesn't know why the men won't help him. The only thing he can move is his eyes, but he's standing, and he's even more confused by the men not helping them, even though they're so close by. He looks up to see a light, and he looks down to see that his shoes are gone, and is shocked by the fact that he is naked. He doesn't know where his clothes are, or even where they went. In the haze, he sees something moving. He begins to become frightened as it moves toward him. Jack doesn't want to be afraid, but he can't help it. He notes, it's not like me. Also noting that this object is shiny. Tony tells him to start from the top and work his way down on the description of this person. He's as tall as Jack is. He doesn't smile doesn't have a mouth or a nose. He's got big eyes, no eyelids, and doesn't blink. They're long and round eyes, like an egg. They're funny, as he put it. More approach around Jack, and he becomes more agitated. They all look the same, with round heads. The eyes are on the side of the head, and the mouth is on the bottom like a turtle, which is why he couldn't see it before. They have slim bodies, clothes are funny, and they don't move right. They have two thin, shiny arms, and their fingers are very odd. They have no thumb. They have four digits, but they're all the same size. And oddly enough, they're gloved. Their bodies were covered in a coverall down to the feet, which was also shiny. One of the beings touched Jack's arm looking for something, and he notes that the appendages feel like caterpillars when they touch him. This then freaks him out greatly. They then lift Jack's arm, and they have an instrument in their hands, it's metal, it's like a pin. They touch him with it, which feels funny as well, but not so bad, but a scrape. He doesn't want it inserted under his arm, but again, to his relief, it again scrapes. Jack is then moved by two of them, by his arms, and he walks, but he doesn't feel it, and he doesn't see the other three men anymore. He then sees machines, like in a hospital. They put him in a machine, and put something over him as he's laid down. It's a device on his chest, and it fits around him. He makes the point that it is not a table, but a machine at this point. It makes a hum and a buzzing noise. They then take it off of Jack and make him sit up, and they stare at him. He says they don't speak, but rather gesture with their hands and nod. They nod at Jack, which disturbs him greatly because of their appearance. At this point during the regression, he begins to hyperventilate. This is due to the fact that they invaded his sanctity by placing something over his penis. The object is like a bell with a tube that goes into a bottle-like thing. 
It can feel it go down and he believes he's urinating into it. It then hurts Jack and he begins to yell. Tony then asked Jack how long this took and Jack responded that it took far too long. They take off the object and then they leave. The two stayed behind. They touch Jack again by lifting him off of the machine and he feels cold at this point. They then take him somewhere else now. He is sit on a bench. Others of the same creatures operated strange looking machines. One of them leaves but one of them stays and watches Jack. He is still naked and he is on a bench and he is there for a long time. They then move him again to another room, where two other aliens waited and probed his mouth, neck, face, and legs. One of them is directly in his face. They are explaining things with their eyes, and he can hear them in his head. Don't be afraid. We won't harm you. Do what we say. Just do what we say. Stand wide, asked one of the entities. They want him to spread his legs. They then repeat themselves, as Jack does this. Just do what we say. Don't be afraid. This isn't so bad. Jack is then anally probed. He describes the sensation as burning, or like an enema. He then repeats a very odd line, it's not so bad, which he had repeated multiple times throughout the regression. As Raymond Fowler points out and Jack himself points out, he believes these entities are convincing him by saying, it's not so bad, okay it's not so bad, and repeating this over and over and over. One of them leaves and they have Jack sit on a bench now. This bench is smaller. Don't be afraid, it says. And Jack replies, I am afraid. He says this with his eyes. Jack asks him, where is Jim? Jim is all right. Don't be concerned about Jim. You're almost finished just a little while longer. Jack was relieved by this. I want my shoes. When you're done, replied the alien. Jack, sitting for a while, then sees Jim with excitement. Two of the abductors are accompanying Jim. Jim is scared and staring at Jack. He is naked. He's moved where Jack is, and then he's gone. Jack waits wondering when they'll be finished, but says that time is funny, which is an odd statement. He then says it feels like it's been a long time, and he then sees Chuck. Chuck has two of these abductors by him, and he is also naked. They are taking him into a room. This is the same room in which they took Jim. Chuck then looks at Jack and communicates through his eyes to ask him for help and he's gone. 
Jim then arrives after some time and put next to Jack on the bench. Jim and Jack speak with their eyes. Get me out of here. Let's get out of here. They then see Charlie being taken to the same room, also naked. It seems like the same direction. One of the abductors is standing next to Jack and Jim. He doesn't sit, but he stands, simply watching the two brothers. He then tells the man, Don't be afraid. We're almost done. Men are afraid, and are moved to a different place, and Jack's shoes and clothes are there. They're on the floor, and they're not hanging. The men put their clothes on, and the abductors assist them. I feel weird, said Jack. Jack begins to freak out during the regression. They bring the men to a machine. A light. It's like tube-like glass, but not glass. It's as big as a Volkswagen. They tell the men to stand next to it. It begins to move toward the men. And as Jack puts it, it makes us come apart. It makes me feel like I'm flying apart. He then begins to feel sick. This sensation seems to have a mentally scarred Jack, and he finds himself back in the canoe. We then began Charlie Fultz's regression. At 2 o'clock on May 20th, 1989, Raymond Fowler arrived at Tony's for the regression of Charlie Fultz. Charlie was already there and becoming acquainted with Tony. Charlie was nervous and warned the men that when he gets nervous he smiles. They begin with a light hypnosis, like with the twins, to recall from his conscious mind what happened. He describes the craft as pearl-shaped with a gray-white color. Something odd seems to be happening with Charlie, though. It's like the lake, the trees, and the canoe are like a security blanket for him. He didn't want to see what was around him. I want to see the canoe, yelled Charlie. What do you see instead of the canoe, said Tony. I don't know, said Charlie. Relax, look down at your feet. What do you see? Charlie can see his toes, no shoes, no socks. His mind seemed to have jumped to another traumatic part of his experience. He was lying down, seeing his toes. Charlie had a violent reaction to the question of whether he was lying down on the floor or a table. Charlie is then relaxed by Tony and his eyes closed. Charlie is afraid and he doesn't want to open them. Very reminiscent of Barney Hill. He realizes that he's not in the canoe but he can hear his heartbeat. He also realizes that he's naked at this time. And whatever he's lying on feels like cool leather. He doesn't know how long he's been there or where the other men are, but he's in something like a doctor's office, but colder. He then describes wanting to be back in the canoe again. He then describes something on the wall as if he's showing it to Tony. It's like a cabinet, but it's in the wall. Tony asks Charlie, does it have glass doors or solid doors? No. They're like white, but there's like a black screen. He looked at it while on the table and then closed his eyes again. Charlie begins to panic when asked what else he sees before he closes his eyes. 
Charlie begins to panic when asked what else he saw. He saw all three of the other men sitting on a bench outside the room. Someone is in front of them, with their back turned to Charlie. He says this person is like a... like a kid. He describes the back of the heads as smooth with no hair. One entity stood on each side of Charlie as he lay on the table. He describes their height as maybe 4'8 to 5 foot. Tony then asks Charlie to describe the face. At this point, Charlie becomes agitated, but is soon calmed by Tony. Their eyes are almond-shaped, and their head is like an egg. Long, thin neck like a girl, petite like an Asian, and they can close their eyes. Raymond Fowler asks, do they? How do they close? Up and down? Sideways? Like a bird's, there's a flash or something that goes across the eye. When their eye closes, they don't have a mouth as if their lips were sealed. Along with his back to Charlie had something under his chin. Raymond Bauer then says, you missed the nose. You talked about the eyes, you talked about the mouth, but what about the nose? It's like an Asian nose. Long, doesn't protrude out. His small nostrils compared to his. The ears were smaller in comparison to his own. And are like the nose and the mouth. But the ears lie closer to the face. From his vantage point, their clothing is smooth, close-fitting, but loose, not baggy. And is gray and white. Raymond Fowler says at this point, it should be noted that the aliens' shiny coveralls reflected and took on colors of their surroundings at any given time. And Charlie describes it as aerobic clothing. Do they have gloves? asks Raymond Fowler. The one on my side, I think, has gloves. I can see part of his hands. The abductor is looking at something. It's like a tray or panel above Charlie's chest. After being asked, Charlie says that he sat up, being held up by one of the abductors behind him. Tony then asks, what happened to the tray that was over your chest? Charlie gives no answer, but starts hyperventilating. What did it feel like when they helped you sit up? asks Tony. Like I was tired, Charlie replied. We shouldn't be here. Charlie just wanted to go back to the canoe. Charlie then sits on the bench with the others, but not all of the men are there. Jim is missing. When asked where Jim went, Charlie said that Jim is where Charlie had just come from. This room was just a few feet away on the other side. He knows that Jim lays down and is wearing nothing but he can see Jim's bare feet. He can see just above Jim's knees and his left leg. The abductor stood one at Jim's head and one at his side just like they had with Charlie. They have the panel or tray above his chest. Charlie can't see what's holding it there. He notes that they are putting things back on the tray and taking things off of it, and that they touch Jim with the things from the tray. 
on the side of his arm and his chest. I don't want to watch, said Charlie. It takes skin scrapings from his arm, his leg, and his shoulder. Charlie pauses. Charlie says again that he doesn't want to watch, so he looks out to the sky. Look out to the sky? How can you look out to the sky? You're in a room, said Raymond Fowler. Where we were watching the canoe. Over there to the left, where we are. Later, Charlie describes a port or window to the left of the bench in the wall. Jim is then back on the bench with him, but Jack is missing. And now in the room, Jack has his clothes on. Then takes them off. Jack sits down, and then he lies on his back, and the abductors stand the exact way they did before. They put the panel over his chest, scraped his arms, his legs, his chest, and his thighs. Charlie notes, it's like a physical. They then look at Jim, and then at Jack. Charlie notes they are interested in the brothers that look the same. They then bring back Jack. Then we are back in the canoe. How? said Raymond Fowler. I don't know, said Charlie. Raymond Fowler then backs him up. You're on the bench. What happens next? I'm looking at the canoe again. How did you get your clothes back on, said Raymond Fowler. I must have put them on. He then notes that the other men had had their clothes on as well. It's noted that this porthole or window is like a safe space for him as well. He focuses a lot on that in the canoe. But I can see the canoe again. From a curved picture window, they take the men away from the window to another room has a couple steps down. There's light panels in the room. They then stand in this room together. They followed three aliens to this room. Two of the aliens stand in the corner and one stands in front of the men, with a wall behind them. They then head to the right of the abductor, towards the wall. Then stairs down the tube, to a landing, and get back into the canoe. One of the aliens is helping them into the canoe. They wait. The craft is above the trees and finally takes off. We then begin our abduction of Chuck Rack. On June 10th, 1989, as well as October 3rd, 1989, Raymond Fowler notes it didn't take long to notice that Chuck was different from his companions. As night from day, he was tough, self-reliant, and fearless. Was ready right away for the hypnosis. Now I jump in here and I put in the fire comment. Yeah, it was a big fire, as big as we dared to make it. We cleared all the way around it, and Jack was worried that it would was going to get out of control. And we told him, "Don't worry." It will be okay. I thought that part was important to throw in because later on, as noted in the prior podcast, he retracts that statement, saying the fire wasn't that big. We then move on to the events that preceded, seeing the craft and the beam of light. But this was a struggle because Chuck couldn't remember the beam 
actually reaching the canoe. He describes it as coming closer to the men, and then right over them. During his second regression, he does remember this. It's like a tunnel. He told them that he felt separated because he could hear the voices of the other men, and they grew dimmer until no more. The assumption here is that he was lifted into the craft. Something is at the end of the tunnel. He describes being drawn toward a, a barrier that seems solid, and he passes through it, and is very surprised by that. He sees a circle room that they're in. It is yellowish, silver, and blue. He looks down and notes that it's bright, but not overly bright. He looks to his left and begins to breathe heavily. He sees a rib-like structure. He looks to his right and sees a continuation of ellipse. He looks up and sees a brighter area encircled by a dark circle. He is then asked by Tony if he can move. Not really, replied Chuck Rack. Moving isn't the issue. The issue is just knowing where he is. He desperately wants to know. He doesn't have a clear memory if someone is there with him. He doesn't want to look back, so he continues to move forward and to the right. It's like a vet's office in this room. A silvery table is there. He keeps thinking he's seeing figures, but he can't make them out. It's like a radio station, not the same frequency. I can't get a clear image. It's noted that in the second session, he says he's not in control. It's almost like they're controlling him. They then bring him to the table where three to four beings, not all the same distance away from him, are. They gently touch him, placing him on the table, and he feels like he's almost drugged. He looks down to see his midsection, and that they're removing his pants. They are then interested in his penis and shine a light on it. They then seem to take a reproductive material sample, and then take the machine away. The instrument is black and it has joints, and it can fold in and move. He notes that it's bigger than his folding lamp. They then move him to the right again, and he sees more figures. At this point, they're slightly more distinct, and he can make out a little more. They're leading him to a bench, and he waits for his friends. They're being led in. Jim and Charlie sit on the bench with him. Jack is in a kind of harness that's around his shoulders and his upper rib cage. They take Jack to another room and raise his arms, almost frisking him to do so. At this point, Chuck hears no voice. Using their hands, they touch his ribcage. Chuck notes that they have at least three fingers. Raymond Fowler points out that Chuck had a hard time with the fingers and that he may have actually mentioned later on a fourth finger. Chuck says they seem to be probing him with something tubular around his armpit and ribcage. Chuck looks at him and says with his eyes, Get me out of here! Jack puts his arms down and they lead him again to the right, and place him on a table. From this vantage point, 
Chuck can see that it has some kind of hydraulic machinery moving around under the table, and describes a similar machinery that took reproductive samples from him. It's like a telescope that collapses in on itself. He sees something shiny and reflective. It's like they are moving him on this thing, adjusting his body. He's laying and they begin to probe his belly button. They seem to be taking reproductive material from him. He says this tubular object seems to be larger, with no joints. It seems to be a solid tube as he perceives it, a little different than the one that he had. They begin to move Jack again and there are four to five abductors moving him. They are in different positions but he can make them out slightly better. Their skin is whitish in color. He describes the head as like an embryotic chicken-like head, with dark eyes absent of color. The eyes were elliptical, and their eyelids were like frog membranes. The cranium looks almost like a duck, oblongated from front to back. Under the eyes he can see embryotic folds, and their lips are like chicken's lips. Although it is noted that in the drawing that he made after this, it's a small slit for a mouth, but he is still hazy and is having a hard time describing them. Their neck is thin like a chicken gizzard. He is on the bench and he sees Jack standing in front of him. They moved him there. Jack is then sitting next to Chuck and he notes that they must have taken out Jim. He then sees some contraption, and they lead Charlie to the table, and they probe his side. While Charlie is on his side, they enter his ribcage. They drag this object across his back as they were taking it out, and what he attributes to almost like peeling a potato. It doesn't leave a big wound and there's no blood. And they put him on his back again. They grab Charlie's arms and they lift him off the table back onto the bench. All four men are back on the bench at this point. They have an object around Charlie that's slender. It's like a bandolier around his shoulder and his side. He goes on to describe this device as the Opera House found in Sydney, Australia. It was curved, and it's almost like it sucks something out of Charlie. Charlie's head is tipped back as if he is in pain. Tony and Raymond then ask him why he doesn't feel the need to help Charlie, and he says it doesn't occur to him, and he cannot move. He notes that this object seemed to have been on Charlie for a long time. They then take the object off of Charlie, and it's almost like Chuck was looking down at him. He's pretty low. Take Charlie off of this bench. It's almost like a body-forming bench. And they take him to Chuck's right. He sees very thin tubular shapes that are parallel. He sees four to five going straight up and down. They're about six inches wide, 
The abductors stand Charlie in front of them and they look at his wrist. They look his hands over. They're bending his elbows and lay, raising his left arm. They look at his chest again and lead him back to the bench again. And there is a figure standing on their left. He says it's obvious what they want and they are directing them but non-verbally. The figure on the left turns away and walks towards the wall. They begin to follow the figure to the wall. They just knew to follow. The abductor waves his hand above the wall and on to one of the rib-like structures. This produces some form of portal. As the men go through the portal, it's like penetrating a membrane. The next thing he knows, he's at the canoe, lowered in a gentle floating motion. Raymond Fowler theorizes that perhaps Chuck blocked this part of his memory out because they questioned him more. And he said something happened, but he couldn't describe it. Chuck describes how two aliens stood waist-deep in water, place him back in the canoe. He also notes that this wasn't the first time he had seen the abductors, and he described a classic bedroom encounter when he was little. Now it's interesting to note that he also remembers reading Communion, as well as Intruders by Bud Hopkins. Now, I find it quite interesting that they all described similar yet different abductors. They were all wearing the same uniforms, but when it came to the face, they described different things. They were all basically your stereotypical gray, but with variations. They all had the elongated eyes and the odd, large-shaped head, but one had a slit for a mouth that was visible. Two reported it being on the bottom. Actually, three. Two said that they blinked, and the other two didn't. Now, for the most part, it seems like, other than Jim, these guys were in some odd state. It was like conscious, but wasn't. At the very least, it seemed foggy and altered to a degree. You can note that from Jim's slow-mo comment, or haze. Now, I find it interesting that Jim, specifically, was worried about his brother. That adds a little validity to it. He didn't really care about his two buddies as much. He cared more about his brother. Charlie focused on other things, trying to distance his mind, rather than focusing on the abduction. This makes sense, and I think a lot of people would do that if they were abducted. Now, they all went over the reproductive materials being taken, with exclusion to Charlie. In regards to that, there's something odd that I notice. Upon writing out my notes and making a bit of a chart, the other three men have prior experiences and experiences afterwards while Charlie had no prior experiences. Could there be a connection there? Now it's also noted that Chuck Rack displays this toughness 
this rational thought. Could that be why he comes out to this day and doesn't believe that it took place? Now, another thing about Chuck Rack is he notes in the book that he was familiar with intruders and communion. But the same events didn't happen that happened in communion and intruders. Another issue I note is Jack's beings are as tall as he is, but the others describe shorter beings. Regardless, the fact still stands that these regressions seem to have affected every one of the men. And they seem to even correlate on a certain level. I think it's plausible that this could have actually happened, just due to some of the reactions that they had. In reading this, I notice one thing in particular. These men didn't take it to a woo-woo kind of factor. They came up with no thoughts of these being interdimensional beings or extraterrestrials, just simply what happened. They were observed and scientifically evaluated. I don't believe that actually fits on a psychological level. It doesn't fit on an interdimensional level. It would have to fit on something coming here to study us. Alright, with that I'm going to let you guys go. Next week we're going to cover some more faded disc stuff. Week after that we might do another UFOs and the Paranormal, or we're going to cover Silent Invasion by Stan Gordon, because that one's coming. I want to thank the Ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. Hit me up at abductionenigma.webador.com And go ahead and please leave a review somewhere, wherever you're listening. Because I don't have any and I'd like to know what you guys think. And I hope you guys enjoyed and I hope you know that it was a pain in the ass to get this one out. So thank you guys for listening. Just remember the UFOs want to tell you something and just keep kicking it.